Pulse Audio Podcast Network. Hello, all you beautiful people. I hope you are having a fabulous Monday or whatever other day you're listening to this. You're here to hear some little known facts about women in history that you probably haven't heard of. And listen to some hosts get a little bit sloshed while doing it. I'm Kelly. I'm sloppy. <laughs> I'm sloppy. <laughs> I'm Emily. Uh, this is like our, uh, we're doing a double header, so we're already like a bottle in and feeling good. <laughs> um, so this is our, this is the second week of Pride Month, but it is our first official Pride-centric episode for the month. Um, time got a little weird. We weren't able to get an episode out when we wanted to, so we're behind a little bit, but... We are still here and we are ready to talk about some LGBTQ plus women that you probably haven't heard of, but you definitely should have. Heck yeah. I mean, we cover them throughout the year, but we like to especially highlight them during this month. Yes. So I hope everyone is having an enjoyable and safe pride. And get ready for another wonderful episode. Hello. All right. So I picked the wine today and, uh, I literally picked this because all of the wine I have at Kelly's house, I'm like, I don't want to drink any of that. It's like a beautiful day. We're getting close to summer. I don't want reds. I don't want like dry no, white. where I was when you were like, I mean, both of them were whites, but I was like, I just want, I want flavor. I know. I want some fruity shit here. It's Pride Month. I want some fruity shit. So uh, I picked Lucio Blueberry Moscato. And it's got like a really pretty bottle. Like I'm into it. It's blue with gold embossments and then like a deep, not even a deep red, but like a bright red wine. And the back of it says, this delightful product. I can't believe they call it product. That's like calling it wine drink. Come on, Lucio. You're Italian. Do better. This delightful product combines the floral and fruity essence of Moscato with flavors of juicy ripe blueberries. Enjoy chilled or mixed with your favorite juice for a delicious cocktail. This would actually go great with pineapple juice or like pineapple orange juice. I would tell, I would, or cranberry yeah. juice. I would mix that. Yeah. Don't drink while pregnant. You know, it's not a very fun back to read, but it's a very pretty ball and it is a delicious wine. I've already been sipping on it because no one can tell me what to do. And I am into it. I really wish I was on the river right now in a tube, just getting sloshed while the river takes me. We also got a little distracted talking about our next video episode. Yes. Which was voted on by our lovely cult members, our patrons, and they have chosen villains. I'm super excited. I Kelly and I are like throwing ideas back and forth, but neither of us actually know what we're going to do. So it's going to be kind of a crapshoot. Yeah. It'll be fun, we though. we got, like, three weeks to throw stuff get, together. going get crazy. Well, here's the thing. We have three weeks to do it, but I will definitely be doing it, like, the week of. I'm going to, like, start panic shopping at Goodwill <laughs> and Savers, like, something speak to me. Oh, yeah. She will be, and she's just going to show up and be like, uh, I'm this villain. I'm going to be like, I'm going to be something really, really stupid and obscure. And I'm going to be, like, all out. I'm going to make I'm it up. I'm super excited about this. I'm going to make someone up and Kelly's going to be like, who the fuck is that? I'm going to be like, you don't know. <laughs> Elaborate backstory. Yes. Yeah, I'm just going to make it up. I'll pull it all out of my ass. All right, Kelly. You'll be an ass villain. 
I love it. I'm just I'm a I'm a set of disappointing anal beads. I'm an ass villain. <laughs> <laughs> Either they're too big or they're too small. It's just it's not working. Yeah. So what are we cheersing to? Happy Pride. Happy Pride. Happy Pride, y'all. I almost said to ass villain. <laughs> I was like, that's inappropriate. Mm. But that's like 90% of our podcast, so. Ass villains are inappropriate. Inappropriate. <laughs> Both? I don't know. I mean, like, October, we cover some asshole villains. I wouldn't say they're, like, yeah. specifically ass-centric villains. <laughs> Not yet. I don't know. This year, I'll have to try and find one. Yes. It was a proctologist who yeah. went too far. Started working the person's head like a puppet (laughs) okay well this needs to stop um moving on i'm going first aren't i you are wonderful woman god okay this will force me to stop thinking about asses so i'm not going to tell you right off the bat who i am covering because i have this whole thing i have a whole system so get ready oh beautiful for spacious skies For amber waves of grain, for purple mountains' majesties, above the fruited plain. Literally, all of us know this song, but did you know? We're getting sued. I didn't sing it. I know. Which I'm shocked. I thought thought you would have. No, because then I might get sued. This is for educational purposes, though. You can't sue me. I'm educating the masses. So we all know this song, but did you know that it's actually taken from the middle of a larger poem? And that poem, America the Beautiful, which is so iconic and woven into the thread of our national identity as Americans, was written by Catherine Lee Bates, professor, author, and queer icon. What, what? Yeah, that song that we all sing at baseball games and stuff, you're singing a lesbian's words. Yeah. yeah. Take that, gay agenda. <laughs> all right. So Catherine Lee Bates was born on August 12, 1859 in Falmouth, Massachusetts. I'm going back to Massachusetts. Her father was the minister of the local Protestant church, but he didn't have much involvement in Catherine's life as he died when she was just a few weeks old. Rude. Catherine was primarily raised by her mother and aunt. Both women were graduates of Mount Holyoke Seminary, now known as Mount Holyoke College, and is kind of a big deal. Her aunt had a love of literature, which she would pass on to Catherine. So Catherine attended what is now Wesley High School, formerly Needham High School, home of the Fighting Summer Hams, and Newton High School, home of the Fighting Figs. That was not the end of her education, though. She attended Wellesley College as a member of its second ever class wow. in 1876. So Wellesley is known as one of the seven sisters. So these are comprised of seven historically uh, all-women's colleges in the northeastern U.S. And these were responses to the all-male policies of schools like Harvard and Yale. Like, higher education was not widely available to women, especially, like, a really good education. So they're like, well, if you want less into your school, we're going to make our own. And some of these schools are now co-ed, but they're still known as the Seven Sisters. 
Uh, so the seven sisters include Mount Holyoke College, where her mother and aunt attended. So she's like a bit of a legacy. So Catherine got graduated from Wellesley with her Bachelor of Arts in English in 1880 and became a high school teacher. I also read that she was like an English literature professor at Wellesley during this time period. Like Murphy? Yeah, like the timing. She was an English literature professor at Wellesley, but the the timing's weird. It's a thing. Maybe she was doing both. Who knows? Teachers get paid shit, so probs. Suffice it to say, Catherine was an English nerd and even studied at Oxford and eventually would earn her master's in arts from Wellesley while working as an English professor there. So she's attending their master's program while working as like an associate professor in English literature. And then she got her master's and they're like, okay, now you get to be a full professor. So they wave their wand and like poof, she was a full professor. That's fun. So Catherine loved writing. In 1889 uh, was a big year for the budding writer. She wrote a collection called Sunshine and Other Verses for Children in which there was a poem called Goody Santa Claus on a Sleigh Ride, which is credited, and Kelly, you will love this, with popularizing another historical badass, Mrs. Fucking Claus. Yeah. And Kelly covered her... not, I don't think it was last Christmas. I think it was our, our first Christmas. Yeah, so like check our episodes from our first December. I believe part of the episode title is a, Cla- a Mrs. Claus Has No Name. Yeah. Because she's just Mrs. Claus. She's like yep. literally never she had an official no first name. And that was really interesting. So I was like, oh my God, Catherine and Mrs. Claus. Like a little history crossover. It's amazing. So in this poem, Mrs. Claus is like the brains behind Christmas Eve. Like she's orchestrating the whole thing. So I'm like, oh, Catherine knows what's up. (laughs) Behind every great man is a woman who's telling him what to do. So that same year, her young adult novel, Rose and Thorn, won an award. And if you want to read it, get ready to cough up $919 for the hardcover on Amazon. Because I I assume it's out of print. I couldn't find like a deep summary of the plot. But since this is a young adult novel, I can only imagine it follows an emotionally distant teenage girl who's trying to balance overthrowing a corrupt government while choosing between two hot dudes in theaters, summer of 2021. (laughs) What I did find was that Catherine in this book focused on poor working class women characters to promote the value of social reform. So like what I said... (laughs) That's Hunger Games, right? She used the money from this prize to enroll at Oxford. She returned to Wellesley and taught English literature and even head the English department for a while. So while working at Wellesley, Catherine also worked as a war correspondent for the New York Times towards the end of the Spanish-American War. So a lot of writing covering the Spanish-American War at this time was primarily propaganda that was promoting negative Spanish stereotypes, but Catherine actively combated these harmful assertions in her writing. She's like, hey, you know that weird, I I don't even know any like Spanish stereotypes. I can't think of anything to make fun of, but she's like, hey, you know that stupid stereotype that you heard about? That's not fucking true. (laughs) She also wrote for a variety of other publications, sometimes under the pseudonym James Lincoln, which I feel like is almost as anonymous as john smith right like it is it's very like meh. that's his cousin or his stepbrother or something like oh you two are just blah 
Although I guess Lincoln, that last name carries some weight, but still. Then, Catherine decided it was time to diversify. So she and her brother, Arthur, built a house where their family could live, but also had extra room for tenants. So Catherine would nickname the house The Scarab after being inspired by a trip to Egypt she took, which I'm like, bitch, I want to be inspired by a trip to Egypt. Come on, get me on a plane. One tenant was Catherine Komen. And to avoid confusion, I'm going to refer to her by her last name. Normally, I use first names, but in this case, we have Catherine Lee Bates, who I will call Catherine, and then we have Catherine Komen, who I'm going to call Komen. So Komen was a social activist and professor at Wellesley College. Komen was an incredibly intelligent and empowered woman who studied and taught history, economics, sociology, and more. Her LinkedIn page was just insane. She even founded the economics department at Wellesley. So all of you economic majors at Wellesley, thanks, Catherine Komen. Yeah. Much of what we know about Catherine and Komen's relationship comes from surviving letters Catherine had written to Komen. For some reason, Catherine burned most of their letters. In one letter, hmm. Catherine wrote to Komen while she was at Oxford getting ready to come back to Wellesley. She wrote, you are always in my heart. And in my longings, it was the living away from you that made, at first, the prospect of leaving Wellesley so heartachy that it seemed less of all possible when I had just found the long-desire way into your dearest heart. Catherine also wrote to Komen, quote, It was never very possible to leave Wellesley for good because so many love anchors held me there. And it seemed least of all possible when I had just found the long-desired way into your dearest heart. Of course, I want to come to you very much as I want to come to heaven. But they're just really good friends, Kelly. It sounds like our texts. Catherine's love for Komen is also evident in her poetry. So I'm skipping a little bit ahead, but I felt it was important just to kind of explore their relationship and the depth of their uh, emotional connection and their love for each other. So in Catherine's poem, If You Could Come, written shortly after Komen passed away, she writes, My love, my love, if you could come once more from your high place, I would not question you for heavenly lore, but silent, take the comfort of your face. I would not ask you if those golden spheres in love rejoice, if only our stained star hath sin and tears, but fill my famished hearing with your voice. One touch of you were worth a thousand creeds. My wound is numb. Through toil-pressed day, but all night long it bleeds, in aching dreams, and still you cannot come. So, despite all of this, like, drippingly romantic and lovely and like truly heartfelt writing and evidence uh, of the two being a devoted couple, there's still some debate surrounding the true nature of their relationship. Yeah, I wonder why. So some scholars assert that they were just really good friends who had a strong emotional and intellectual bond because basically they're these Two very intelligent, independent women living non-traditional lives for women at the time. They're both well-educated. They have their own jobs. They're living on their own. And 
in that kind of being on the fringes of society, they form this like really deep friendship. And I'm like, okay, here's the thing though. If a dude wrote that to a woman, you wouldn't question it. You'd say he's into her. So, and I think it's important to note that the reason there's debate is because Catherine is assumed to be heterosexual as a default and scholars need to prove that she wasn't. So it's like, well, we don't know that she wasn't straight. We need to find evidence to prove she wasn't straight. So instead of trying to understand her sexuality, they're trying to prove or disprove that she was straight, but they're already starting with that like, straight is the default and I feel like that happens with a lot of these stories where it's like well we just assume they're straight until we're told otherwise which we totally do in society so Catherine did have male love interests in her life such as uh Theophilus Root uh, that's a name we gotta bring back Theophilus Theophilus I do like that name yeah too. great for a boy or a girl they can go by Theo they can go by Phyllis just go by Theophilus. Love it. So Theophilus was the brother of one of Catherine's classmates. Um, however, there would have been consequences for Catherine had she married a man. And I think I mentioned this last week. We were talking about why a woman would or would not marry. So Catherine was living an independent life, teaching, running a rental property, traveling. And she was on track to earn tenure at Wellesley, which was a big fucking deal. Like tenure is not an easy thing to come by. Had she married, though, she would have been expected to give up all of that to be a wife. She would have lost all of her independence. She wouldn't be teaching anymore. She wouldn't be able to, like, up and travel whenever she wanted. And it does seem that Catherine and Theophilus did have a romantic relationship. They weren't just good friends because when Catherine and his relationship ended, Catherine did experience a deep depression. But maybe they were just really good friends. See how stupid it sounds? So in this story, I do refer to Catherine as queer versus bisexual or pansexual or lesbian because it does seem that her sexuality is not monochromatic. Is that, you know, like she's yeah, not, it's not just black and white. Yeah, she's not just into men. She's not just into women. Um and because I, I felt I felt queer would be more encompassing than trying to label her as bi or pan because she never used any of those yeah. labels herself, obviously. So I'm, I'm just trying to like kind of cover my bases. So Catherine's relationship with Komen was often referred to as a Boston marriage. Yeah. It's like our favorite thing, which in the vaguest of terms means two women cohabitating without a man. But if we want to get specific, it's code for lesbian relationships. So it's like, I have to say, though, I love that like two women rooming together and just not needing a man to support them. Like, you know. That's a Boston, they got a Boston marriage. Like, like that's it's, so weird. It's interesting because, like, you treat it as, like, a side-eye thing. But, like, in some societies, it totally wasn't. Like, they were just like, yeah, they're just two really well-to-do women that don't want to get married and they live together. Yeah, but I, I, I guess I find it interesting that it needed a title. Yeah. Like, because every time I look up the definition for Boston marriage, it's asserted that it can be a platonic relationship or yeah. a lesbian relationship. And I'm like, well, God, I mean, 
either you're in a lesbian relationship and living together or you're just roommates, you know? Like, we did that. We had a Boston four-way in college. We had a Boston block. I mean, I think it kind of, like, hints at, like, a deeper connection, though, like, beyond that. Like, even if it's not sexual, it's still there, you know, maybe aromantic is a good word. Like, you know, they're fulfilling that partnership need beyond a simple friendship but maybe not necessarily oh, do you a mean sexual like relationship asexual yes i mean that could that could definitely be a scenario but yeah we we had like a boston harem in college heck yeah we did four of us i Take mean aromantic that. would still well aromantic means you don't feel romantic, romantic attraction feel, yeah or but you i mean don't you could still have way. like a connection yeah, but yeah, you I have think an emotional ace, connection. Asexual is probably more what I was thinking of. Yeah. So, Catherine was certainly a woman living outside of the norm. She was independent, employed in education, traveled, and was unmarried. Le gasp. <gasps> she had no problem with any of this and was not afraid to throw shade at those who did. So, one of her colleagues described her and similar women as, quote, free-flying spinsters. And as a free-flying spinster. I know. I want that jacket. I'm a free-flying spinster. I mean, you're not, but. Hey, I'm not married. I'm just perpetually dating the same man. And I'm 30 and not tied down. I'm a spinster. (laughs) But uh, so he described them as free-flying spinsters and as a, quote, fringe on the garment of life. Dude, get your head out of your own ass, okay? Smell the real world. But to this, Catherine replied, quote, I always thought the fringe had the best of it. I don't think I, I don't think I mind not being woven in. She's like, yeah, bitch, I'm a free-flying spinster on the fringe of society. Deal with it. You can't hurt me. I love it. My jean jacket says free-flying spinster, you motherfucker. On the fringe. Yes. And then on the fringe, it's just like. No, it says on F- the fringe. F- <laughs> free-flying spinster on the fringe. Oh, my God. I love it. Okay. That's merch. Right there. Free-flying spinster on the fringe. All right. We're doing it. I'm we'll going to work on made. the designs tomorrow. We're good. So Catherine and Komen would remain together until Komen's death in 1915 from breast cancer. Wow. Bitch. Breast cancer, not yeah, her. I, I know. <laughs> so they were together for 25 years. That's, in, a, that's amazing, though. Like, that's great. Right? In response, Catherine wrote a memorial, which is considered the first American narrative about breast cancer. Oh. You might have a hard time finding it, though, because she only shared it with those that were close to Komen, so like close friends and family, which I think is really sweet because she's a writer. She's a professional writer. She's making money off of her writing. But this was just like this deeply emotional thing that she's like, I'm just writing this for you guys. Like I'm using my gifts and my skills to try to write something to help you heal. Yeah. Yeah. She wasn't like published. I don't know. It just seems like it was a very intimate piece that was only being shared with those who were closest yeah. to her, which I think is very sweet. After Komen's death, Catherine published a collection of poems called Yellow Clover, A Book of Remembrance, which contained poems she had written to Komen while she was still alive. And I'm like, these are like love poems, you know, like she's writing Komen these poems while she's still, 
while Coleman's still alive. And now she's publishing them after she died. So this is the collection that the uh, expert, or sorry, the excerpt that I read previously from that, um, like, but you will not come because you're dead. Yeah. That, yeah. Um, so this is the collection that that poem oh, okay. is from. Yeah. Um, the forward of the collection was a biography on Coleman, which was hugely affectionate and indicative of their romantic relationship. And it used like, we would think of it as like maybe formal or flowery language, but at the time it was like very intimate yeah. descriptions of Coleman from by Catherine. Oh. Even though it seemed like Catherine was living her best life, she wasn't immune to sexism and discrimination. She also witnessed the failings of the Industrial Revolution firsthand, including the exploitation of laborers, urban poverty, unsafe working conditions, pay inequities based on gender or race, child labor, and how a few were getting filthy rich off, to the, off of the literal blood of unpaid workers. But wait, there's more. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Order now and get a second copy for your friends. Oh, God. And things just got worse during the economic depression of 1893. So, like, and I'm not trying to piss on the Industrial Revolution, but I'm just saying, like, some negative shit it came with it bag. that was not addressed and is, like, still not really being addressed as well as it could. So, Yay. Catherine advocated for labor rights, women's suffrage, uh, promoting women in education, and to improve the urban slums that were quickly growing around factories. Because people were, like, moving into these cities to find work, and that was great, but they had no room. They were living in shitty conditions. They're all crammed into these little rooms together, and it's just an absolute nightmare. It's dirty, it's full of crime and poverty, and it sucks. She also volunteered with Komen while she was still alive at a settlement house for immigrant workers. So she wasn't just like sitting back and bitching about it like some people I know, hmm. Emily. <laughs> she was doing something about it. We're not bitching, we're whining. Yeah, we're whining. It's totally different and I'm totally valid. So it was these hardships and a desire for social reform along with some stellar scenery that inspired what is Catherine's most famous poem, America, the beautiful, so beautiful. So she spent the summer of 1893 in Colorado Springs teaching English at Colorado College in the state of, you guessed it, Colorado. I really wanted it to be like some other like, like Wyoming. Arkansas. <laughs> Arkansas. So she was uh, so taken aback by the natural beauty it inspired her to write the poem. And she later said, quote, one day, some of the other teachers and I decided to go on a trip to 14,000-foot Pikes Peak. We hired a prairie wagon. Near the top, we had to leave the wagon and go the rest of the way on mules. I was very tired. I'm like, oh, I bet same. <laughs> but when I saw the view, I felt great joy. All the wonder of America seemed displayed there with a sea-like expanse. So she's at the top of this mountain, and she's, like, exhausted. She's like, I'm so fucking over this. She's probably doing it in tiny shoes and a dress, and she sees the view, and she's like, oh, shit. Right? <laughs> she's like, this is gorgeous. Oh, damn. Inspired by America's natural beauty and the hope for it to improve socially, she wrote Pike's Peak, which was then later titled America the Beautiful. It was first published in the Congregationalist in honor of Independence Day of 1895. 
She revised the poem and it was printed in the Boston Evening Transcript in 1904, where it reached a much wider audience. And the final version was published in her collection, America the Beautiful and Other Poems, in 1912. A reviewer wrote of the collection, quote, We intend no derogation to Miss Catherine Lee Bates when we say she is a good minor poet. I'm like, what's that? Like, Minnesota passive-aggressive shit right there. It's like, well, it's not bad for, like, a minor poet, which is so funny. Like, because remember, this included a poem which is now woven into our national culture identity. Like, Kelly, do you remember learning this song or where you first heard it? I don't. I just... I think I popped out of the womb and I was just like, oh, beautiful. (laughs) I think actually I heard it on like a kid show or something. Because I remember thinking Purple Mountain Majesty. I was like, where are there purple mountains? But very young, I was exposed to this song. And I had no idea that a queer woman wrote it. Like, ah! Yeah, I didn't either. So the poem was put to music. Duh. By Samuel A. Ward, a church choir master in 1910. So that's where we get the the tune from. Just eight years later, on November 11th, 1918, a U.S. Army battalion nicknamed the Yankee Division serving in World War I sang America the Beautiful upon hearing of the armistice. Wow. So like they hear that the war is over, this horrible war, and this is the song that they break out singing, which just shows how quickly and like it became popular where these men serving overseas were singing it in honor of the end of a goddamn global conflict. Wow. There have been attempts to have America the Beautiful legally designated as a national hymn or anthem on the same level as the Star Spangled Banner or even to replace it. But obviously that hasn't really gone anywhere. Um, There are arguments for and against it. So America the Beautiful is centered on America's natural beauty, but also like social reform and kind of like we need to... Like, we need to do better. Here's what we want to be. Here are the goals we're striving for. While the Star Spangled Banner, which was obviously inspired by a literal battle, is more warlike, you know? Yeah. Like, because it's, it's describing a battle. That's just it part is. of it. And so it kind of depends on how you feel and how you value each of those things. Because people will be like, well, the Star Spangled Banner is a little too warlike. And then people are like, I love the Star Spangled Banner because it is warlike. You know, it just, it really depends on your personal taste, but I, I get it. Um, also, the America the Beautiful ha- has clearly socialist sentiments. That would be a total no-go. Uh, the last line says, America, America, God shed his grace on thee till selfish gain no longer strain the banner of the free. Just saying. I did not know that. Yeah. Well, and the song that we sing is, I don't think we ever sing the full thing. It's usually just that first part that I sang or read, did not sing it, I'm legally fine, um, that we know. Yeah. So on March 28th, 1929, Catherine died at 69 years old in Wellesley while doing the most Catherine thing ever, listening to a friend read her poetry. She was just like a little English nerd to the end, and That's I love super her. Cute. She's buried in Oak Grove Cemetery in Falmouth, Massachusetts. Legacy. 
So shortly after her death, Wellesley College established the Catherine Lee Bates Professorship. They also named a dorm after her, which I'm like, I just want to go and take my picture with it because I could never get into Wellesley, even if I tried. <laughs> There's a street in Falmouth, Massachusetts named after her, and her home there is a historical landmark maintained by the local his historical society. P.S. It's gorgeous. Catherine was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 1970. Duh. Can't believe it took that long. Because she wrote America the Beautiful in Colorado, there's an elementary school named after her in Colorado Springs. There's also another elementary school named after her in Wellesley, Massachusetts. Collections of her writings are kept in collections across the country, including at Wellesley College. She has also been recognized as a pioneering queer woman. Catherine was named as one of the, uh, sorry, one of Equality Forum's 31 icons in 2015 for Pride Month. Aww. And as I want to do, I want to end this with a quote. So like I mentioned, Catherine was an activist who worked to empower the women around her. In 1928, she spoke to the National Council of Administrative Women in Education and said, what I feel still resonates today, quote, you are in the thick of the battle. I congratulate you because the struggle is difficult and the goal is great. And that is Catherine Lee Bates who wrote America the Beautiful, Aww. a song we all know and never knew where it came yeah. from and that it was written by a queer woman. Like that is so cool. And that how is we, amazing. And like, honestly, just from the stuff that I read you, I was like, and how are we still wondering if they were in love? Like, and it's one of those things where I'm like, if a man was writing that to a woman or a woman was writing that to a man, we wouldn't question it. Mm -mm. We, we wouldn't be like, well, maybe they were just like really emotionally close or like really good friends. It's like, what? I don't know. No, but I yeah, get it. I get it. Catherine Lee Bates. She's a bad bitch. Bad, bad bitch. She's a she's a free flying spinster on the fringe. Yeah. Yep. I love that. <laughs> All right. Well, Kelly, who are you whining about today? Everyone miss on their cell phone. <laughs> Jared texted me, and I need to respond to him. Do you want me to wait? That's fine. You can go ahead. <laughs> fine. Um, so I'm whining about Catalina de Aruso. Catalina de Aruso? Yes. Catalina de Aruso. So she was born in the Basque town, which Basque is a region and ethnic group in Southern Europe. It kind of like straddles the Pyrenees Mountains. Oh, okay. So it's an ethnic group. I don't know why I said, oh, okay, like I know where the Pyrenees Mountains okay. are. <laughs> um, and it's like the Western Pyrenees. Oh, oh, well, then. Yeah, that makes so much more sense, yeah. you know? Yeah, no, now now I'm centered on this massive globe of ours. Um, It's kind of like, I mean, it's Spain and France. Okay, now I, I know it's where like I am. the Western part of Spain and France. Okay, okay. I am I am positioned on the edge. Yeah, it's, it's northern Spain and southwestern France. Okay, because the Pyrenees kind of divide. Cool, cool France, cool, Spain. Cool, cool, cool. Yeah, noise, noise, toit nubs. Uh, yep. <laughs> um, so she was born uh, in the Spanish 
on or in the Spanish area named San Sebastian. Um, in either 1585, if you go by the autobiography she wrote, or 1592, according to her birth certificate. Or sorry, not birth certificate, baptismal certificate. Wait, I'm sorry. She said her birth date was, was 1585. 1585, and her baptismal says, says 1592. But not everyone gets baptized when they're born, so I'm like, maybe that's why it's a different... I don't know. So okay, she was for- born sometime between... Fi- 1585 and 1592. It's so funny because I thought she said 18 something and her baptism thing said 15. I was like, no. whoa. 15. I She's might have said it She's super backwards. lying about her 1585 age. <laughs> or 1592. Somewhere in there. I feel like a woman doesn't usually lie about being older than right? they are. So I'm going to trust um, her. Her father was a captain and military commander of the Basque province. They lived in under King Philip III of Spain. Um, from an early age, Catalina was trained with her brothers um, under him in the arts of warfare. So she was taught to fight from a very young age, which is great. Uh, I don't think her mother liked that very much because when Catalina was about four years old, Catalina and um, her sisters, Isabel and Maria, were taken to a Dominican convent. Oh, no. Yeah. Um, Catalina's second cousin? It's her mom's cousin. I was trying to, like, picture a family tree in my... So... Catalina's mother's cousin is the prioress of this convent that they got sent to, which is why one of the reasons they got sent there. Um, so they grew up there. Catalina became, I mean, she was already pretty strong because she'd been training, even though she was only, she was very young, but she became like stocky. She ended up developing a pretty quick temper. She wasn't super religious. She didn't like being in a convent. She often felt imprisoned and refused to take the vows to become a nun. You know, I will say Old Testament God is pretty quick to anger himself. So So basically she's being trained as a nun, but she's like, no, I don't know. Um, And so she ended up quite often detained in her cell. And I'm sorry, her cell. I mean, I I don't know if they call them that, but like their rooms are very cell like like it's it's a little bedroom. Oh my, okay. I'm like, wow, this is a super metal convent. (laughs) Right. She would also uh, constantly fight with some of the other novices in the the prior. Um, At the age of 15, she, after one of the beatings by an older nun that she received, Catalina decided she was done. At a girl. So on March 18th, about 1600, um, on the eve of San Jose, Catalina found the keys of the convent hanging in a corner, waited to the, till all the nuns went to morning prayer and escaped. She spent a week fashioning boys' clothing out of, like, cloth that she had stolen and headed to Vitoria, staying off the main road. She cut her hair short and easily passed as a boy. There she took on the name Francisco de Loyola. She then set about chasing her various dreams, which included... Drinking, fighting, fighting, and womanizing. I was gonna say being the baddest bitch in no, the yard. She, her, her <laughs> like I I picked her because her life is like insane. Oh my god! I'm already like, why is this not a movie? I because know. she's basically broken out of a convent prison, masquerading as a boy. Yep. 
and is hitting on like every hottie hot woman that she runs into where she's like hey how you doing how'd you know that i bet she does share food too catalina shares catalina shares food um so in Vitoria, Catalina met a doctor and professor named Francisco de Saralta, uh, who was married to Catalina's mother's cousin, different cousin than the one that was the prioress of the okay. Abbey. So she she like still managed to find someone that she knew, kind of like distant relative, and they took her in, but they didn't recognize who she was because like funny. they took her in as a boy. Yeah, she stayed there uh, for three months, learned some Latin. Um, but when he started becoming abusive, she left. She's like, nah, I'm not going to take this shit. So she took some money from him, met a mule driver, and went to the city of Val- Val- Valladolid. Valladolid. Yeah, something like Valladolid. that. It's Spain. <laughs> um, the court of King Philip III of Spain resided in this city. Um, under the Duke of Lerma, which... Lerma, man. I'm sorry. I'm so um, sorry that that's your name, dude. I know. Um, so Catalina would serve under the king's secretary named Juan de Idequez. These names, man. I was, um, it's funny because we have so much trouble with French and Spain is like their neighbor and we're like not doing any better. So that whole region, man, I can't say anything. Oh, sorry. She served as a page. Oh, okay. For, like, so that was the name she, that was her name. That was the name she took serving under the king. One day, Catalina's father came to the area looking for his child <laughs> and actually spoke with Juan, a.k.a. Catalina, and like, was like, hey, have you seen my daughter? She's missing. You know, this is what she looks like. She escaped from a convent. Um, Please tell me Catalina was like, she sounds hot. I know, right? <laughs> so she had, he had this whole conversation and then like left. No idea it was his daughter. Oh my God. So with her father being in that town, Catalina decided to head to Bilboa just to kind of put some distance between her and her family. Um, unfortunately, in this town, Catalina wasn't as lucky. She couldn't find a patron or a place to sleep right away. Um, and soon after she arrived, a group of boys made fun of her and attacked her. Oh! Uh, she got into a rock fight with them uh, and managed to injure one, which meant she was arrested and spent a month in jail as a boy. Like, they they don't know she's yeah. a woman. Yeah, okay. Okay, I laughed at rock fight because that just seems like an idiot thing that boys do throw rocks at each other. But she actually went to prison for a month for like hitting a kid with a rock. I don't know. I just envisioned like a herself. headshot or something. Oh god! I mean, she like, would have been sixteen or seventeen. She's right between the she's eyes. She's an adult. Right I, between the yeah, eyes. Exactly. That's what I envision. I envision a lot of blood. Uh, once released from prison, she was like, "Nah, I'm out of here too," and went to Estella uh, and did find a patron there and found some work. Um, she. Was able to work as a page again under a lord within the town. Um, and he she actually stayed with him for about two years. He treated her really well. You know, she was really well dressed. Like, she was well taken care of. Um, um, no one's quite sure why she decided to leave. My guess is she got bored. Um, I was going to say, it seems like it's hard for people to keep her interest. Right. Well, and I mean, she's not like 
with any of these people. She's just working for them. Yeah, you know? yeah. She's just like doing her thing. So after the two years or so that she spent with uh, in Estella, she actually returned um, back to St. Sebastian, her hometown. So she went home um, and lived there as a man taking care of her relatives whom she saw frequently and never realized who she was. Oh my God, she's like reverse Mrs. Doubtfire. She actually went so far as to attend mass at her old convent sometimes. At this point, she's just like fucking, she's like, how much can I get away right, with? Right, yeah, and no one ever recognized her. Oh, I kind of love her. Like she she seems like a little bit of a troll, but in like the only the best way. Um. After some time, she um, met a man named Ca- Captain Miguel de Berizio, who took her to Seville. Um, they <gasps> did had only she meet a barber there. No, damn. She did, however, meet a man named Sanlúcar de Baramito, uh, who was a ship captain, and she quickly found a job as a cabin boy on his ship. Oh no! Sorry. San Lucar de Barrameto is a town. So she went there and she met Captain Esteban Aguino, where she became a camp boy. On okay. His ship. He was also a cousin of her mother. How many cousins does this bitch have? Lots, apparently. Is she like, is her family like 50% of the population of this region? Yeah, because apparently. Jesus Christ. Um. So on Holy Monday of... 1603, according to her memoirs, which may or may not be accurate, she and the ship she was on sailed to America. (gasps) Oh, damn. She's coming to fuck shit up in the new world. Right. (laughs) So the first place in the Americas where Catalina landed was Punta de Aria, which is now part of Venezuela, where she and the ship that she was on had a confrontation with a Dutch pirate fleet, which they defeated. And all was good. Oh, my God. Um, Then they went to Cartagena and Nombre de Dios, where they stayed respectively for nine days each. Um, The weather was real bad on the passing, and they did lose several soldiers, but Catalina was not one of them. Oh, snap. Um, When they got to Nombre de Dios, they boarded the silver that they were, like, there to pick up and was ready to return to Spain. At that point... Catalina shot and killed her uncle, which I'm assuming they mean the captain of the ship, but I don't know. Because it was her mom's cousin? Yeah. So, not her uncle, because that would have been her mom's brother. That's who I'm guessing they're referring to. Catalina shot and killed someone. (laughs) Someone Um, she was probably related to, because she's related to literally everyone. And stole 500 pesos. She told the sailors that her uncle... um, had sent her out on an errand and left the ship, and then the ship returned to Spain without her. So she stayed in the New World, basically. Um, she just, like, low-key murders this guy. He's just like, yeah, I don't know. Like, uh, I'm going to go. I'm just going to peace. It's fine. Don't worry about it. Right. From there, she went to Panama and started working with Juan de Urquiza, who was a merchant. Um, and he sent her to the port of Paita, which is now Peru. You know. Change of name, um, where he had like a larger shipping operation going on. Um, so they went to Peru and then, and then she went to Manta, which is now Ecuador. 
um, on a ship, but how the sh- the ship encountered a strong wind and storm that actually destroyed the ship, and she managed to swim and save herself and her master, but the rest of the crew died. Oh. You know what's weird? A lot of pirates and sailors didn't know how to swim. Oh, dude. Okay, you know the uh, thing. you know the uh, Indianapolis disaster where the ship got blown up after delivering components for the H bomb. Yep. Same thing. Most of those dudes didn't know how to swim. That was yeah. World War Two. Yeah, that was a thing. The for Navy like the longest did not... time the the Navy didn't require people to know how to swim. Yeah, and I'm like, if this if these bastards are going to be on a boat, they should probably know how to swim. Like, are you fucking serious? And right. so many of the men on that ship were like newbies from the Midwest, like did not live by the ocean or a lot of water, like did not have a lot of opportunities to even learn how to swim. And I'm just like, you think that if you're going to send a bunch of people out into the ocean, you would at least teach them how to swim. Yeah. I get it's a war, but come on. Right. So after saving her master, she went to Zana, um, which is kind of just like a region, I think in Peru. Um, this was a place known for their cattle and grains and fruits and tobacco. Like basically they had a whole bunch of exports and the master that she saved was like, yeah, that's fine. You can live there. I'll give you a house and some clothes and some spending money and some slaves. Oh shit. Okay. Um, as one does, you know, it's like basically you save my life. I'll like kind of help you get started with yours. Kind I also of love that he can just like, like this was back in the day where someone could just give you a house because they liked yep. you. Um, later she got in a fight with a young man who, who, who had threatened her. So, I mean, like he kind of deserved it. Uh, she did, uh, she, she, remember I said she had a bit of a temperature. Uh, she cut off like part of his face. Oh my God. Uh, And she was again arrested. See, I thought you were going to say penis. No, that would have been better probably. Um, and then she would have put it in a lab coat and (laughs) full circle. She would have punked a bunch of people. So she was taken to jail. Um, but this time her master was able to kind of like nudge the Bishop and like get her off. So she was released on the condition that she married Donna Beatriz de Cardenas, who is the lady of her master and aunt of the guy that she cut the face of. Okay. My story last week got really messy with like relationships and family. Oh yeah. This is a new level. This is amazing. So she has to marry the aunt of the guy whose, whose face, face she, she cut. cut because she cut his face. Yep. And this is like her sentence. And it's like her one of her master's mistresses too. So oh it's my like God. this whole Can we can can I also just say that it sounds like they're like, okay. Because they, they, they think she's a she's Man, a boy. Yep. Okay. You're kind of a wild dude, and you need to calm down. You know what's going to fix that? A, a woman. Being forced to marry a woman. Because then her virtuous, gentle nature will rub yep. off on yep. you, and now she'll be, or you'll be her problem instead of society's. Um, They'll cut her face instead. So she initially agreed, but not wanting to be discovered, she then refused and went to the city of Tr- Trujillo. Um, again, her master helped her. Um, he had opened a store there. And so he was just like, you know what? You can, you know, work there or whatever. We'll just kind of ignore what you did. Kind of he a thing. He is the, like, frighteningly okay with a I mean, lot of things. I mean, he saved her. Or she saved him. I know. When everyone else died. I know, but still. Um, 
However, the guy whose face she mutilated found came out for where yeah, found out where she was and came to challenge her, accompanied by two of his friends. Oh my god! Uh, Catalina was like, "Sure, let's fight, brah," and and brought a friend with her. Um, in the course of the fight, one of the man mutilated man's friends got killed. Oh my god. She was imprisoned again, and her master actually managed to save her again. He gave her money, a letter of recommendation, and went leave. So he sent her to Lima. I'm sorry, how come every time she gets arrested, her life gets better? I know, right? It's not also, fair. it sounds to me, now granted, I'm sure a lot of this information is from her memoir, so like maybe not the most reliable narrator, but how come this dude who has already been attacked by this person is like rolls up, fuck you up, seeks her out, and then one of his and brings one of his buddies, and the buddy gets, but the buddy gets killed. He, he brings two of his buddies, right? And one gets killed, yeah. but that's her fault. <laughs> like know. this dude came to me. I ladies don't start fights, but we will fucking right. end it's them. It's interesting because. So in the version I picked, she gets imprisoned a lot. In the if you read, uh, she's also on Rejected Princesses, and in that version, she ends up using she claims sanctuary at churches quite often because okay. that was a thing back yeah. then. It was like a hunchback of Notre Dame. Yeah, and sanctuary. so I don't know which one she did. Either way, it's kind of great. I I love the idea that she hated going to a convent, but then she was like playing Claiming the sanctuary. <laughs> yeah, I do have p- one of those stories in here later. Okay, so this time he sent her to Lima, um, which was the capital of the viceroyalty of Peru. It's actually still the capital of Peru. So good job, Peru. I guess. Yeah, remember we did that song, Lima, Peru, La Paz, Bolivia, Montevideo, Uruguay. We we did. The you whole, did the song. We did the whole damn continent. <laughs> Anyways, so she, when she got to uh, Lima, she gave the letter of re- recommendation to a man named Diego de Solarta, who was a very rich merchant in Lima. And so he was like, yeah, you can come work for me. Like, because she had that, like, you know, from her old master, like, hey, she works. She's really good at working. I don't know. She had a letter of recommendation. Hey, if you're drowning on a ship, this bitch will save your life. <laughs> right. So she was responsible for the business for nine months. She did a really good job, but then was fired when she was discovered fondling a woman, particularly the sister of her master's wife. Oh, damn. So she wasn't like arrested or anything this time. She was just dismissed and she quickly found another company that was recruiting. This time their aim was the conquest of Chile. Um, and she was kind of like, yeah, I could use a new occupation. Like this whole, like working for merchants isn't going great for me. <laughs> so she enlisted cause it's, you know, it was a company recruiting for a conquest of Chile, which it was the military. Okay. Um, she enlisted under the command of Captain Gonzalo Rodriguez, and she accompanied a 1,600-men team from Lima to the city of Concepcion in Chile. There, for two years, she worked as the best job ever, a llama driver. Oh. My. Damn. I know. So she would drive llamas from Chakisaka to the mining center of 
pot potosi. I'm like, I don't know what it is, but I would drive llamas. She's just the master of llamas. Yeah, she's like a llama herder. I bet she was really good at it, too, because llamas can be little assholes. And she's like, hey. She's like, I'm not putting, I will cut your face, llama. Yeah, but I bet she's like, hey, I'm an asshole, too. And I feel your asshole energy. So let's just, like, be cool. And the llama, like, kind of gave her this slow nod. Mm -hmm. And like, and then they they roll into town. And she's like, okay, you can spit on that guy. Yeah. (laughs) Hey, I don't have to cut up any more people's faces because I have an army of llamas. I'll just spit on them. It's fine. After those two years, she was recruited as a soldier. So she marched with her company uh, to Chile. And they basically just like swept through Chile um, and the property of the Mapuches. And this really let her get out that like super aggressive side of her that she definitely had inside her. And she um, started massacring Indians. That's, I'm going to go with native people because they call them Indians. And I'm like, eh. But they're kind of not. They're kind of not. Um, But yeah, she started. I mean, that's what conquerors did quite often. Uh, And she she got into it, which is unfortunate. uh, In Chile, she was welcomed by the secretary of the governor, who was her brother. Jesus Christ, bitch. And he did not recognize her. Oh, my God. Um, she remained there for three years and eventually left because of a dispute with her brother over a woman. They wanted the same woman. Seriously, her family is like 90% of the bloodline of the world, apparently. Right. Um, so she got, because he was higher ranking than her, um, she was banished to Paisabo, the land of... Like the indigenous people, basically. Like they were like, you just have to leave our civilization. Okay, like go to the wilderness. Um, Once there, Catalina fought in the service of the crown in the Aruso War against the Mapuches in in what is today Chile. I don't think at the time it was. It was Mapuches. I thought it was pretty warm. But (laughs) you said... No, in I'm we're, so warm. Oh, I'm like chilly. sweating. Um, so she earned a reputation for being brave and skillful with weapons. And she managed to do all of this without revealing she's a woman. Good God. Um, in the Battle of Val- Valdivia, she received the rank of second lieutenant. lieutenant um, and in the next battle, the Battle of Purin, um, her captain actually died and she took command of her unit and won the battle. However, she had so many complaints against her. Again, like for cruelty to the indigenous and stuff like that, that they wouldn't promote her any. Like, they're like, no, we're not going to make you a captain of a unit. I'm sorry. Is Catalina actually turning into a war criminal before our eyes? We're like, not really, because we're almost done with the war. Okay, because I was going to say, even the people who are on her side are like, she's She's like, she's just bloodthirsty. She's like way too conquering. Like, I want to conquer this place and kill people as much as anyone else, but she's like, Way I mean, she here. does she does go a little crazy once she kind of found out she wasn't going to be promoted anymore, and she did a lot of vandalizing and killing of people and ex- Jesus extensive damage, including burning crops. So she did go a little like warlordy, just a, just like a little bit warlordy, just like a skosh. Um, in Conce- back in Concepcion, uh, she assassinated the chief auditor of the city after a dispute. Uh, this was one of the times that even she said that, yeah, she fled to the church and claimed sanctuary. Um, and she actually 
uh, ended up, she locked herself in the church for six months and only left when one of her friends needed help, like in a duel. So she goes to this duel and she kills someone and that someone ends up being her brother. Oh my God. And the then same she gets brother? Impri- yeah, same brother. That she and then she gets imprisoned. At? Oh my God. She, after she got released this time, she fled to Argentina across the Andes uh, which was probably terrible, but you know, if you can sur- be one of the only people to survive a sinking ship, you can cross a mountain. It's fine. Yeah. Um, that rugby team did it. She did almost die. Well, some, some of, the- I just watched a video on this. Oh, it's fucked up. There was like 25 of them and like 16 of them survived. Yeah. It was, um, they, so it was, uh, I think it was a rugby team. Yeah, it was. And they and, crashed. And in their the, families. Yeah, and they crashed in the Andes in, I think it was 1972, and they were trapped there for 72 days. And the only reason they got out was because a few of the guys decided to well, they fucking hiked. climb out of the Andes, and there's, they managed to find a person. There's a YouTube video, like, person I watch, she's a mortician. And she, like, talks about stuff like that. And that was, I just watched it, like, literally two days ago. Yeah. And she talks about, yeah, like, the cannibalism they ended up doing and, like, just all this stuff. It was, yeah. I'll have to send it to you. It was really good. You'd like it. Anyways. So she treks across the Andes, almost dies, and is saved um, by a villager in Tusamon. Um, So, like, that's where he lives. He finds her, like, in the Andes, brings her back. Um, there she promises to marry two different, like, women of the village. One is the daughter of an indigenous woman, um, that was, like, helping Catalina convalesce. Like, that's where Catalina was staying. And then the other was the niece of of a canon, which is, like, the village, like, a priest is, like, it's similar. Oh, okay. Like, holy man. Holy person. I'm like, I didn't know canons could reproduce. I thought they just went boom. I guess they do bang. Oh. <laughs> They're also cannibals. Yep. Don't you plug Canon on our show. They don't sponsor us. <laughs> they only video record for 30 minutes. Assholes. Um, so she ended up, like, basically once she was well enough, she she ran. Because she was like, no, nah, I'm not marrying anyone. Um, but kept the money and clothing that had been given to her by the niece of the canon as a sign of love. She's like, mm, thanks, but no thanks. She's just such a little smash and grab. Um, like Then she went to Potosi, where she became the assistant to the sergeant and returned again to fight the indigenous, participating in a lot of the mass killings that happened. Not like she didn't instigate them. It was just, it was happening. We did it in Vietnam. And that was also no, not okay. I know, I know, but you're just like making this face like really. I'm like, yeah, they it happens. It's terrible. Um, she's just a little bit warlordy, maybe just like a touch. Right. Genocidal. She then moved to La Plata, uh, where she was accused of a crime that she actually didn't commit this time. <laughs> they tortured her and then set her free, still without them finding out she was a woman. Getting real lucky. Yeah. Um, once once out of the prison slash torturing, she devoted herself to smuggling wheat and cattle um, by the order of the one of the captains she used to work under. So basically, she's kind of smuggling them f- to the army. For a second, I thought you said weed and cattle. Wheat. And I was like, that's a modern woman right there. <laughs> right? Pussy um, weed. 
She got caught doing that and was, and once again claimed sanctuary in a church until the heat died down. I wish you, sometimes I wish you could still do that. Actually, there was a, there, I don't remember where this was, but there was a family, uh, a refugee family, and they were going to get like sent back to basically yeah, like where they were going to be killed. And they went into this church and basically claimed asylum in this church. And the church was like, yeah, they're our problem. Fuck off. Yeah. You, and protected you, them. You can claim asylum in some churches in some areas of the world. And I think you also can in your own consulate. Like if you're in somewhere else in the world and you go to your own consulate, yeah, yeah, you can yeah. claim asylum. Because you're technically on your soil. Yeah. So if you're going to do anything, just run. <laughs> run yeah. to your consulate. Do it right outside your appropriate embassy. Um, in po- post-Cobamba. She got into another fight and killed someone else. Color me shocked. She likes to duel. See, and that's the problem. Like this was, I find it funny that apparently like if you engage in a legal duel, dueling was still legal in some parts of the world, but you kill the person, you're still going to jail. Dueling's not legal. Dueling is legal. Murdering the person you're dueling is not. It's funny. It's like having a bong is legal, but using it is illegal. <laughs> That's basically exactly what's going on. Anyways, so this time she was sentenced to death. Oh, snap. I mean, this is what, like the fourth or fifth time? I was going to say the fact that this hasn't already happened um, is truly shocking. However, she was saved at the last minute, um, this time by the deposition of another uh, prisoner. So basically, like, he was like, no, I did it. <laughs> like, he, or he, like, he gave some, like, oral testimony that basically got her out of it somehow. Is she just, like, stupid charismatic? Yeah, I think she is. Good God. Um. So after she got out of, like, the death sentence, she went and claimed sanctuary in a church because she got in another duel. Like, she basically, like, was sentenced to death, got out, a jealous husband found her, they got in a duel, and she was like, okay, I need to... Like, she didn't kill this guy, but, yeah. you know... She was still in trouble with the law, so then she she claims the sanctuary. This time she stayed in the church for five months. Just chilling. Can I just say she quasimodoed it up. I feel like she would really benefit from a class on de-escalation right. and communication because it seems that the angry. only way she knows how to deal with her problems is to Duel. shoot people oh, okay. or murder them. Jesus Christ. I, I added my favorite one from Directed Princesses in here. Um, so then she moved to La Paz and Bolivia. Bolivia. Uh, got this time it didn't say, but she um she did something again. And this time to escape, she pretended to confess. And then seized the consecrated house and ran away. Wait, okay, hold on. She stole the body of Christ and ran? Yeah. And because it was consecrated... So it's probably me- like a loaf of bread or something, you know, oh, like okay. whatever they consecrated Did at the it time. already go through transubstantiation? Like, or was it still just bread? No, if it's consecrated, if it's already the consecrated house, it's already been blessed by the priest. Okay, so she stole the body of Christ. Yep. 
and ran away to Peru. She kidnapped Jesus. <laughs> Wait, I mean, usually you eat him. Is that any better? Well, then he becomes a part of me. Uh, well, maybe she ate him when she got to Peru. Oh, my God. She ate him on her way. Yeah, exactly. She's like, I'm feeling snacky. <laughs> In Peru, this is probably my favorite one. Um. So... In one town in Peru, she, she was sentenced to death again for killing a sheriff's servant. Here's what happened. This is not her smartest hour, but I find it hilarious. <laughs> so the servant had insulted her. So she she was mad. And in retaliation, she went to police headquarters and stabbed him in broad daylight. Yeah. So she was taking last communion again. She spat it out and she started yelling, I call on the church, demanding to give confession before she died. And she was like, I will only give it at at the church. Like, you know, like, and so they took her to the church because, you know, people don't want to upset God. Yeah. And then she, she immediately pleaded sanctuary and refused to leave. Uh, A month later, you know, when things were, they were still like kind of waiting outside for her, but and. And enough had cooled off that she was able to slip out and leave town. Okay. Here, here's the thing. At first I was like, wow, like what a crazy person, like going on all these adventures. And now I'm like, is she a psychopath? Like what? She's just murdering people that piss her off. And then she's exploiting that. And she, she feels totally justified in doing it because she can get away with it every time because everyone's an idiot. Yep. So in fact, it was this use of the church as her get out of jail free card, basically, um, that actually ended up revealing she was a woman in kind of a weird roundabout way. So in... About 1623, um, in Haumanga, Peru, um, again, she killed someone else. Not sure why. Like, at this point, she's just, it doesn't even matter. She's but just pissy. She realized, um, she was taking sanctuary in a church again, and she realized, like, she's like, there's, at this point, you know, I'm not going to jail every single time I do something. I'm getting sentenced to death, like, this is serious. I need to like stop and and find a way out. You can only get sentenced to death so many times before, before you realize like, mm. there's a problem. Jesus so Christ. This time, instead of just claiming sanctuary, she went a step further. She begged the mercy of the bishop of the time, which was Augustine de Carvajal. And, you know, he granted her the audience because, again, you don't want to piss off God. And she confessed to him that she was a woman who had, like, basically she gave him, like, a, a watered-down version of her life because I'm sure she didn't tell him, oh, I've killed however many men. And I blah, was a blah, warlord blah, blah. for a little while. Yeah. It was no big deal. But basically, like, she told him she was a woman and, like, my life's been rough. You know, I was in a comment, blah, 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 blah. Um, to prove it, basically, um matrons of the church like he didn't do anything creepy like, i was gonna say they did brought she flash in, a bishop no they they brought in matrons of the t- church that came in um determined that not only was catalina a woman but she was still a virgin 
And apparently, being a virgin was a really big deal still. So not only did um that prove she was a woman, but somehow that the fact that she was a virgin essentially wiped clean the two decades of murder and warlordiness. Yeah, that she had just gone on and she was declared a blessed individual provided that she devote herself to God. I don't know who I'm more upset with, her or the church. Because first of all, how do you determine virginity? You literally can't. Intact hymen. That was their... That means nothing. I know. It can grow back. Exactly. But also, they don't know that in 1623, though. They don't know that in 2021. But this reminds me of what we were talking about in last week's episode with the whole, like, oh, two women together is virtuous because only men feel sexual attraction and there's no dick. So I'm like, are you serious that she can murder whoever she wants? She was probably having sex with women. She was getting enough husbands pissed off about it. Like, oh, yeah. So. So she she was about 35 years old at this time, and she did manage to devote herself to God, at least for a while. (laughs) No, she did. She did really good for like the rest of her life, basically. But she actually ended up going so far as to talk to the Pope of the time, which was Pope Urban the eighth, and actually got permission from him to pursue her life in men's clothing However, he was like, you can't harm anyone. Also, there's a commandment that says don't kill anyone. So don't kill anyone else. Have you heard of it? Um, but she did get leave basically to pursue her life in men's clothing if she if she so desired. Okay. Um, after all of that, now that she's her slate is wiped clean. Like hell it is. <laughs> She went about petitioning the Spanish crown for the financial reward for the services that she should have received as a soldier. Because obviously, like, she was running from the law a lot. She didn't exactly have time to collect her paycheck. They didn't have direct deposit back then. Right. Um, basically, so she she filed a Relacion de Meritos y Servicios, which is Accounts of Merits and Services. So she was seeking reward for time in the war. She also sought compensation for money lost while spending like traveling around, you know, while running from justice. Well, and she, you know, she was a llama herder for a while yeah. and, you know, all that stuff. Um, so this document that she had to like fill out and send to the courts um, included witness accounts, you know, and other people that knew her. However, she kind of had a big problem there because a lot of her accounts were contradictory and most people knew her under other names. Like right. they didn't know her as Catalina. So she really never got any compensation because they like they were like this eh, 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 not you question mark. Yeah. Like it kind of came back to bite her in the ass. I'm a little okay with that. <laughs> right. Um because it's not because she's a woman, it's because she's been like running from the law and like lying about who right. she is. It's not even exactly. the gender thing. It's just like she's reinventing herself because everyone wants to sentence her to death. Right. So in 1630, she ended up going back to America and settled in what was New Spain at the time, which is probably somewhere in Veracruz. 
between Mexico City and Veracruz, somewhere okay. in there. This time she became a mule handler because they don't have llamas there, probably. <laughs> I mean, it's like the same thing, right? They're just like short-necked they llamas. They spit as much. They yeah. bite. Um, but this time, she yeah, she was carting them between Mexico City and Veracruz, like in, in that area. So she was just hauling them around. Um, sometime soon after this, she died. Okay. <laughs> and I, the reason I say it that way is because there are varying stories about how she died. Some locals stated that she died carrying a load um, of mules on a boat. Some say that she the death occurred at the heights of Orizaba, which I think is a, like a mountain mm-hmm. um, in Mexico City. I don't know, actually. Um, but that she died there alone. Most plausible is that she died in the village of Cotax, Cotaxtla. Cotaxtla? I don't know how to pronounce that name. C-O-T-A-X-T-L-A. Cotaxtla. Co- I keep wanting to say Quetzalcoatl. Yep, me too. Um, but I'm sure it's in there somewhere. <laughs> she died. Uh-huh. Um, and according to the historian Jacquin R... Aranis, her remains rest at the Church of the Royal Hospital of Our Lady of the Immaculate Conception of the Juaninos Brothers. Yes, that is the entire title, um, which today is popularly known as the Church of San Juan de Dinos uh, in Veracruz, Mexico. Okay. Remember when I covered... um but there is no documentation of exactly where she's buried, when she died, or where she died. Yeah. Remember when I covered Olga of Kiev, who murdered swaths of people in increasingly creative and horrifying yeah. ways, and she became a saint? It's like this. This is somehow even more bonkers, though. Because at least Olga, they could say, oh, well, she turned her life around. And she, like, I mean, Catalina built kind a of bunch did. of churches. No, they split her slate, slate clean and because she, she was a didn't, virgin. Well, and then she just didn't murder anyone else after that. Not that they know of. <laughs> she just took care of mules. Uh, anyways, so Catalina, like I said, wrote an autobiography later in her life. Or dictated. Again, like, there's a lot of, eh, in this yeah. story. But... The point is, it it came a manuscript, and it was originally published in in 1829 at the request of Jacquin Marie Ferrer, and then was subsequently published several times after that. Um, it is titled in English, The Ensign Nun. The Ensign Nun? Yep. Can I just say, I love that the story starts with her fleeing a convent and then she basically becomes wrapped back up into the whole religious life. So there's a large debate among researchers about the authorship of the autobiography. Um, Some researchers um, branded it as apocryphal and definitely not true. Others are saying um, it's semi-true, but like it's exaggerated. However, um, given the existence of baptism certificates and various testimonies about Catalina's life and works, um, there is strong evidence at very least that the person and some of the events did happen. Like the person is de- was definitely alive and they're thinking most, if not all, happened. So I hope the cool. part about the llamas is true. 
Um, another big thing, my, that is 100% true. Um, <laughs> her street head canon, there were llamas. The other thing that is highly discussed about Catalina is her sexual orientation and gender identity. Um, in the memoir, Catalina never mentions being attracted to man, but there are very, there's a lot of details about a lot of relationships with women. Um, including an encounter with the sister-in-law of a merchant, a quarrel with her brother over his mistress, and um, the various betrothals to different women. Um, and again, those betrothals usually ended with Catalina exploiting the situation and running away. Yeah. Because why not? Um, Catalina also mentions once being surprised by a hostess touching between her legs and also acknowledges having taken advantage twice of being disguised as a man to get gifts from future fiancés. Yeah, there is some argument. The biggest argument is whether to view Catalina as transgender or lesbian. Uh, that was kind of my big question through this, because was Catalina masquerading as a man because it was convenient or because that was how she right. identified? And no one knows. Okay. Um. So over the years since the first printing of Catalina's memoirs, there have been many different retellings and exaggerations and efforts to both de-lesbianize and potentially over-lesbianize. Like, just as things change in our society, like we saw in your story, like sometimes they're like, okay, we're just going to take the lesbian portions out of this. And, yeah. you know, so it's hard to know what's been removed and what's been added and what, you know... Um, through the, you know, the invention of heterosexual versus homosexual relationships and, you know, how much was downplayed and blah, 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 blah. Um, I in I, regard, so regardless of how Catalina identified, researchers are still divided into different camps on the story of her grand adventures in general. Um, but yeah, the biggest argument is whether she was, yeah, attracted to women in order to stay disguised and to blend in whether she was just attracted to women or whether she viewed herself as a man. I and we're gonna, never going to know. I, I was going to say, I wouldn't even really call it. She definitely exploited situations. That being said, I think that was just a part of her. Like, Yeah. I think even if she had somehow lived her life as a woman, she probably would have still used found people. A way, you know. Yeah, that, that just seems like who who she was. Yeah, I think the real question is, was Catalina... Did she view herself as a man a, a or A trans not? man or... Just we'll never know. In, yeah. Um, oh, that puts us in kind of a weird gray area because we're a women's we history podcast. It's okay. I still wanted to cover... She, I mean, she writes as a her. Okay, so she, Catalina uses she, her pronouns... I mean, no one brought that up in the section, so, and I didn't obviously read the book, but. Okay, well. The the quote of touching between her legs is direct yeah. a direct quote, so yeah, she, okay. I believe, referred to herself as she, her. Um, so despite the existence of this autobiography, which was published, you know, which is interesting, so it was written in the 1600s, pu not published until the 1800s, and between that time, Catalina really ended up disappearing from a lot of records, um, specifically that time when she was in Spain and running around with the indigenous people in the new world. Yeah. Doing a lot of Anyways. murdering. <laughs> so one of the copies that of her book ended up in, in the hands of an academic named Juan Batista, Bautista Munoz. Um, and he wrote a book called the history of the new world. 
And that's like the first mention of Catalina, like re-seen. And then basically various copies of this autobiographical memoir, even though it hadn't been published yet, kind of just started ending up in different people's hands. And then she, you know, people started writing about her again. And then eventually the manuscript got published. Um, so the, the name it originally got t- titled under, and I don't know why they didn't keep this. So it was called La Historia de la Monja Alfaraz Escrita por Ella Misma, or Story of the Nun Lieutenant Written by Herself. And I'm like, why did we change it to the inside nun? Why couldn't we have keep it as the nun lieutenant? That's so much better. The nun lieutenant written by the Herself. nun lieutenant. Yeah, exactly. Read by the nun lieutenant. Um, and then after that, like I said before, after the initial publishing, it was published several more times. And again, who knows what was taken out or added in. Um, the character of this nun lieutenant uh, was and remains today a source of inspiration for many writers, playwrights, filmmakers, and artists. And it is similarly an exp- ex- la, 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 inspiration for many analysis and academic papers trying to explain Catalina's complex personality and this life that she was leading. Um, one of my favorite things that I read in my research is basically one of the last anecdotes in her autobiography. And she's talking about the meeting with the cardinal and the cardinal remarks, your only fault is that you are a Spaniard. And she responds, with all due respect, that is my only virtue. <laughs> oh, that's good. I love she's that. She's like, no, I'm a terrible, terrible person. The only thing good about me is that I'm Spanish. I also love that she flipped it on him. I like, know. don't you try to nation shame me. Well, yeah, so that's Catalina. The nun lieutenant. The nun lieutenant written by herself. I am exhausted because that so was a ride. And I, like, I almost didn't cover her because there there's been like one or two other people that I haven't covered because it's been that gray area. But one, that story was just like too insane. And two, because, I mean, transgender didn't exist at the time. So, you know, but we have had people like one of the other people, I can't think of the name that I was going to cover, did refer at to themselves as he, him, which is why I decided not to cover it. Cause I'm like, that's it's, it, it's in a gray area. Cause no one technically knows, but it's leaning more toward transgender. Whereas this one, I'm like, I feel like it's gray area leaning maybe slightly more toward. Yeah. Lesbian. And it's, it's not necessarily that transgender people didn't exist oh, at all. Not at yeah, all. Yeah. yeah it, but it, it's, it's just more that in this memoir of, dubious authorship Catalina refers to herself as she her so that was kind of right. the judgment she call eas- she could have easily referred to had, herself as he him. had Catalina use masculine pronouns we probably wouldn't be talking about her today right. and so that's kind of where we're coming from because especially when someone's gender identity and sexuality is hard to identify usually it's like people from a really 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 long time ago if we can find any documentation of how they refer to themselves that's usually what we default to because maybe that's what we have well maybe they didn't have the the words or the understanding you know to use different terms but we also want to 
trust them and how they see and refer to themselves. Right. Instead of like saying, oh, well, I know who you are better than you do, you know? Right. And we're not saying that transgendered men are bad or terrible. Oh, or fuck no. shouldn't this, be talked about. We're women's just a women's podcast. history podcast. I know. Yeah. And I just want to throw that out there because yep. their stories deserve to be told too. Just not on our podcast. Yep. So Kelly, what are you thankful for? What am I thankful for? What am I thankful for? It's always hard when we do two episodes I know, in a row. It's, it's so like, hard. Oh, I'm like, the, I used it all. I used the good one like two seconds ago and nothing's happened in um, the last five minutes. I don't know. I'm thankful for a long weekend where I don't have a lot to do. I am really thankful to our patrons. I was actually uh, on our Patreon today and I was... Uh, doing doing some housekeeping on it and it just kind of struck me like we have nine patrons oh my god people are actually financially supporting this podcast because they enjoy what we're doing and it was just that realization of what oh my god and it's just it's Doing this podcast has been just such a positive experience with learning about these women, uh, getting to spend time with Kelly, connecting with other podcasters and other amazing people, uh, whether they be listeners, authors, podcasters, etc. It's just been a wholly positive experience. And every time I'm like sitting down doing research, I'm like, I just don't fucking feel like it. Like I would have so much more free time if I didn't have a podcast. I just think about all of the things I would be missing out on had we not started this podcast. I'm so glad that we did. And I'm so, I'm, if you ever want to stop, just let me know. But I'm so oh, glad no. that we keep doing it. And yeah, like all the people we've met and all the people that support us, I couldn't be more thankful. Yeah, we love you. We love you so, so much. All right. Well, please continue to support us by liking us on Facebook at Whining About Her Street, Instagram at WAHPAD. Twitter at WH underscore pod. Our website is whiningabouthistory.com and our email address is whiningabouthistory at gmail.com where we would love to hear from you. We also have a Patreon where you can donate for as little as $1 to get some special content and some special goodies from us if you donate at higher than $1. Uh, We also have a Teespring where we have some sweet merch, including our new merch of, what was it? Something spinster on the fringe. Oh, uh, flying spinster on the fringe. It was Flying Spinster, wasn't it? I thought it was SS. What? Or FF. I swear, I don't... I oh, don't. Free Flying Spinster on I the Fringe. Like, yeah, there you go. Free Flying Spinster on the Fridge merch coming soon. Yes. Um, also, please raise five stars wherever you listen. It helps us out significantly. It costs you nothing. It gives us all the warm fuzzies. It really helps people find the podcast. It does. Especially on Apple. Oh, Yeah. Gotta get on those Apple reviews there. Get on those social meds. Oh, the social meds, don't you know? Don't you know? And it's not spendy, I'll tell you that. <laughs> that went a little you Irish like for Irish a second. The end there. <laughs> what the fuck? I can't do Irish when I try. How'd I slip into it? Anyway, thank you so much. We for, love you. For listening to another episode of Whining About Herstory. That's Kelly. That's Emily. Have an empowered day. Bye. Bye.